Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 31, a show about hard drives, data recovery, forensics, and more. I am your host, Jeff Hallish. My hard, my hard Drive Died is brought to you by Reclaim Me Pro, the all-in-one highly configurable data recovery software. For a free 14-day trial, go to reclaimme-pro.com. I'm here with Scott Moulton from myharddrivedied.com. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. It, it's finally, I'm, I'm excited to actually catch up with you. Yeah, <laughs> we've, we've had system problems. We've had, like I had, a, I had a trial or something going on last time. Like we had it scheduled for an exact day that I had to go to court and testify. So, oh. you know, it's like, oh man, I got to And then after that, it was like, it was just slammed until, until we could now hook up, I guess. So, uh, so I'm glad to finally meet up, but yeah, it's been, it's been like two months, three months over what we should have done right right so we'll uh we'll definitely yeah it's hey we do what we can do and uh you know we got we got to make money in our what we yeah, do for yeah. a, a plus, living plus this is a uh, 31 <laughs> episodes i mean that's that's almost a week of work just uh in podcast itself there you go so, uh well i had done previous ones with uh, pod nuts i had done at least one or two or three uh, so, and then, you know, I had a whole bunch of other podcasts. So altogether, there's plenty of material for people to listen to. And, and I do hear from people all the time, they go back and listen to the old podcasts. And so I've heard in the last week or two, some other people that, uh, wanted to know some more about data recovery or doing it for a living and have gone back and started listening to the old podcasts. Uh, and it, it's amazing, you know, just to hear that, that everybody, you know, still says how phenomenal it is. And so I'm, I'm really thrilled about that. And also you guys don't forget to go look at the pod nuts ones. Cause like I said, there's some of the pod nuts ones over there that I had done previous to calling it my hard drive died. That's right. Yeah, I do. Yep. All those episodes are up over on podnuts.com. Well, you know, uh, for, for three years, I did the uh, computer America radio show, which was a two hour radio show every month. And I did it we did, we did it consistently. Like I, I think I only maybe missed one episode, uh, in the whole, in the whole sequence. So there's three years of those out there as well, uh, for people who want to go back and listen to some. Now, the only bad thing about that is there's commercials and stuff in <laughs> more frequently in it. So it may take you a while to listen to all those if you can find them. But, uh, but, but, and there was the, the one that I missed, the, I was there for a part of it, but, uh, it was hilarious. It was the one episode that I actually threw up on the radio oh. <laughs> as I was sitting there talking and I was doing a podcast and I just wasn't feeling well. And I told him ahead of time, I wasn't feeling well. And I got this migraine and all of a sudden it came on like an hour into the, into the, into the whole thing. And then I, they asked me a question and I just couldn't help it. And I immediately like turned and threw up. <laughs> you can hear in the back and they like cut the volume and they go, uh, I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> Oh, but these are the classic stories that we live by, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, I still think it was hilarious to this day, but mainly because the next day, uh, so I was talking to my girlfriend at the time and she's like, yeah, I listened to your pod last, podcast last night. It was fantastic. You did a great job. And I'm like, and, <laughs> and that's when you find out. Yeah, she didn't really listen to it. She might've listened to 10 minutes and then turned it off, but there's no way she listened to the whole thing. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Now you also have a, you have a YouTube channel too, don't you? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I have consistently over the years put up quite a few videos. So there's a hundred or something 
uh, real, you know, how to do it yourself or what all the tools are or go through things uh, on my YouTube channel. And and it's easy to find if you go to myharddrivedive.com, you go to presentations, there's links on that page to YouTube channels and to uh, file presentations that I've done. Sometimes I put videos and save the videos in a FTP server and you can link to it and download. You know, I, I don't know, I've got a couple hundred gigs up there that people can download of previous, you know, do it yourself. And, and sometimes uh, it's older classes and stuff that I've done too, where I take the older classes and I take like a whole day of the older classes and I put them online. So I, I've, I've, I've got a lot of material and a lot of real stuff up there that walks people through every single segment. Uh, you know, I try not to be, you know, commercialistic in that standpoint, even though, you know, I'm making a living selling classes and doing data recovery and doing forensics. Um, I don't do it as a, a, a sales process from that standpoint. I'm trying to tell people the real answers. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I think that is your claim to fame is basically you just give stuff away all the time and it's real information that people can use. So that's awesome. Yeah, and I have a. I'm working on a new speech, and I'm not sure all the places I'll submit it yet. But uh, Sky Dog Con is one that comes up in Nashville. Uh, usually, it's September, October, September, I believe. Um, I have to look at the schedule and see. But uh, it's you know basically the, um, the the premise of this particular one is the ten things you didn't know about data recovery. So the things that are the myths or the things like uh, you know one of the options, one of the items we can talk about some of these, which is like you don't actually need a clean room to do data recovery. I still hear that every single day. And, 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 you know, and just kind of really some of it is because I wrote a class, um, in 2007 when I, when I first started teaching, I, I, I never really intended to teach, but a company came to me and said, Hey, um, why don't you write us a class and we'll pay you some money and pay a licensing fee. And uh, so InfoSec Institute is the company that came to me and said that. And and I didn't really do my research. I didn't really find out, you know, they're not a really great company from that perspective. There's a lot of, and, and, you know, that's a matter of opinion too. So, you know, don't sue me because I say something online. Right. <laughs> that's my opinion. I There's a lot of reasons why I don't work with them today. And I didn't work with them after the first class I produced. Um, but they still use some of my old material against me to basically sell classes uh, for themselves in this process. And that's one of the things I'm constantly hearing is because they market. And if you look at their material and even their marketing material, it's my material. You can see it. You can tell it's mine. You compare it to my, my current site and things like that. You can tell it, you know, 99% of it is my material, but they use this one blurb where they try to say, you know, if you're going to try to do a recovery without clean room, like some professed experts out there say, <laughs> then uh, you're not learning real recovery. You're learning fly by night, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, so they, so I get these messages all the time that say, uh, well, can you do this without a clean room and that we don't believe you. And, you know, cause, cause you know, there's a difference between a clean recovery, what you actually have to do from a data recovery perspective versus something like forensics. And one of the things I guess most people don't realize is that data recovery was going on for 30, 40 years prior to this. And, those people are, you know, they're all over the world. They're in Italy, they're in Spain, they're in France, they're everywhere. They don't have clean rooms. They didn't even have the ability to, I mean, certainly not back in, you know, 20, 30 years ago when a clean room is twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 for the small basic unit, they didn't have the money. They weren't doing it uh, either. But a lot of times they would declare that as marketing myth, basically, to keep people from trying to get into their material. But the, but the part that's the hardest for me is that my own material is being used against me to you know, sell a class that is subpar 
that I, I wrote, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, um, compared to my current class, which is really updated and has all the current material in it uh, and goes through every step of the process. It's just kind of one of those things, I guess, you have to deal with when you make a mistake like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, obviously everybody that listens to this show knows you're the real deal and you actually know what you're talking about. Now, as far as clean rooms go, now the whole object of, you know, I would look at it at a clean room and this is from the outside looking in, I would look at a clean room and say, okay, I need a clean room if I'm going to disassemble and assemble a hard drive that I'm going to put back into use. But other than that, if you're just trying to get the information off of it, you, you're not always going to need that, right? Well, and, and you bring up a good point. And, and that was, you know, when hard drives were, you know, $2,000 each and you wanted to do a minor repair and you could, you know, still put that drive back in use, that made sense. And so, uh, you know, if you open a hard drive, contaminants will undoubtedly get into the hard drive. Sure. It will not typically, you know, and, you know, keep in mind that I'm also stating that you know, there is some proper handling procedures where you're, you know, putting fingerprints on it. You're not, you know, hair isn't falling out, snot's not coming out your nose and dripping <laughs> onto the disc or something like that, uh, which which happens. I mean, people, you know, the first couple of times they disassemble drives and put them back together, they look like they ate dinner on the on this plate. <laughs> and so it, it really is a mess. And, right. Uh, but once once you've been through this, you've had training, you do this, it doesn't look like that at all. After you've done, you know, eight or 10 drives, you've done them right and you've done the proper handling procedures, even without a clean room, they won't look like that. They'll look pristine. And now, but, you know, granted, you're not going to repair this drive and put it back into use. You're not, these drives are, you know, 40 to $200, depending on a drive today. Right. It's not worth the risk of your damage of your data to put one of those drives back into place. So these drives will not be useful after, say, six months or, you know, something along those lines where the contaminants have started to eat away at them. Uh, but for the data recovery purpose, it will almost be perfectly fine for that first 30, 60 days while you're doing your recovery and doing that process because the drive's going to be spinning. The platters as they're spinning will spin off dirt and materials and dust and things that, you know, aren't you. If it's, if it's like your dead skin and it has oil on it, it's going to stick to the platter. But if it's not you, it's not going to, it's not going to do that kind of damage to it in this temporary cycle with which you're recovering stuff. So you bring up a good point in the fact that yes, years ago we were recovering them, rebuilding them, and repairing them and putting them back into play because they were expensive items. But today they're disposable and warranty is almost not even worth it. So you're buying a new drive and you've carried on with your life while someone's recovering your data. So you're not going to take that old drive and put it back in your system and get it running again. We're not, you know, you know, we're even talking about a difference in segments of, you know, 15, 20 years ago where you couldn't even go to a local store and get a hard drive. It was a difficult task. Right. Uh, for most people or an expensive task. And now when you're talking about a commodity that's, you know, the price of a toaster, it, it doesn't make much sense to do that from that perspective. And so, you know, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that this, they're not going to go back into play. And so it's completely a, a sound process to do your recovery, get your data off, be done with it and throw that thing away. Yep. That sounds good. So in a lot of these cases, now you do use a clean room for certain tasks though, right? Yeah. I mean, I try to use a clean room as much as possible. And when we're doing forensics, we definitely use it. So in forensics processes, that is, you know, you physically at least are doing everything you can because you need to preserve this data for a much more 
uh, indefinite period of time. When you have cases that go on for four and eight years, you want that drug to be as pristine as possible. So I have a clean room and we use it for all forensics cases. In data recovery cases, we do use it as the initial component when we're doing platter replacements and head replacements. Just as a matter of practice, that's where our tools are. That's where the things are laid out. That's, you know, and, and you could fundamentally build one of these for very little money. I mean, for less than, you know, five, six hundred dollars in some cases, you could build something very similar to what we, we're they're not really cleaner. They're called workflow benches. And workflow benches are kind of, uh, it's kind of like air conditioners with HEPA filters in them. So a HEPA filter is a high efficiency particulate air filter. And so you're filtering out 99% of the dust. And there is a whole rating that goes with this. And I go through those things in the class. I go through every single thing. If you're going to be a professional, you're doing this for you know NASA or something, then you're going to need this room, uh, which I've worked with. You know, so I, you know, I know what they're using. I know what what is in those locations and what they need. Um, but, you know, from that purpose, but there are times where it just doesn't make perfect logical sense. Like you've got equipment that cannot sit in this room. And so you've got times where you have to make head adjustments or platter adjustments while it's on the fly. And so there are times where you've got to be out with 20 or 30 other pieces of equipment that just don't fit inside the space of the clean room area. And, those adjustments have to be done on the fly while the drive is running. So you can't always have while it's open every single instance of, of it being in a clean room. But there are a lot of data recovery companies who want you to believe that they want you to believe that they take all their equipment and they put it in their clean room and that they're running it all in there, which is virtually impossible. Uh, the bunny room, you know, the room where you, you dress up in a bunny suit and then you get into right. the room. Well, <laughs> Yeah, but that's a hundred thousand dollar room. So, <laughs> in order to make money doing that, that's that's a pretty extensive or pretty uh, you know good investment, and that means that you also have to charge your clients you know three four thousand dollars per drive. And some of you out there know that if you've called some of the other places, they they do even in instances where they don't have the bunny room that they're charging three four or five thousand dollars per drive. And uh, and I just don't generally think that that's reasonable. Uh, it is a lot of work and there is a lot that's involved with it. There is a lot of equipment, but there is a scale by which some of this stuff needs to be done or can be done. But I mean, I've done 10,000 drives uh, and, and a huge amount of my drives have been done for legal purposes. They've been done for court cases or by, you know, for police or for law enforcement or, or government agencies. Um, and then I go and testify about them or about the recovery process or what I've done. But uh, I mean, just generally speaking, that's, you know, it's not always plausible to put all your stuff in this clean room and then work on it in that area. And, you know, even though I have one, I'm going to tell you that there's times that you just can't do it just because of the type of recovery or what you're doing. Uh, there's, there's a few with certain platter replacements that you have to punch out items using uh, special equipment and you just, it just doesn't all fit in there. It just isn't built to be able to handle two tons of pressure while you're pushing down on, you know, motor assemblies and things like that. Okay. No, that makes perfect sense. Again, it comes down to using the right tool for the right job, right? It's not really, it, it's not one, it's not one size fits all. And I think that's a yeah. lot of people get ingrained into doing things one way and that's how they're going to explain it to everybody. But when there's a many different ways of doing something to get the same results, yeah. you got to know what you're doing. But, you know, think, you know, keep in mind, if you were going to say, Hey, what can I do that makes it so that no one else out there in the world tries to do their own recovery or works on their own stuff or tries to learn this process, we can have, you know, only 10 data recoveries in the world have these clean rooms. So they're the only ones who can do this recovery. And if we convince people 
that they can never do it because they don't have a clean room and they're not going to do it for just one purpose. They're not going to buy a $10,000 clean room to do one drive. So therefore you get the work. And that's how it worked traditionally for years was that, you know, this black art, basically all the, all the data recovery companies would use that as, I mean, I don't know that there was a real agreement where everybody sat down around a table and said, Hey, but they did talk to each other and there were places for them to talk to each other about, you know, saying, Hey, you know, is just make sure you always tell somebody that you need a clean room and then no one's going to try it themselves. And we're going to keep the market down to 200 companies instead of, you know, 10,000 people trying it. Gotcha. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a marketing ploy from that perspective. And there's been a lot of people pissed off about it over the years. I've gotten threats before I've gotten, you know, don't, you know, you're revealing all of our secrets or doing whatever. And, And a lot more in the beginning, you know, back in 2003, 2004, when I started, explaining this process on stage and trying to tell people. Um, but, you know, I just don't, I don't agree. And part of the problem is because forensics, in many cases, there's a lot of things that can be done in the field that you don't need a, a clean. I mean, they do data recovery and they do physical replacement in the desert, in Iraq and Iran. And so there are places where you know, military are doing these things in the field and they don't have the ability to use a giant clean room or carry it on their back. Right. Now that makes perfect sense. Very cool. All right. So let's, um, well, you know what, let's continue down this vein and go into what, what you were talking about as far as the 10 myths of data recovery. And, and this is myth number one, obviously, and it's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I will only, you know, I would only mention, you know, two or three of them here. It's a new speech that I'm trying to write to try to do something uh, for some upcoming conferences and things. And so, uh, you know, at this point, um, I just, you know, I have two or three that I would discuss really quick just to kind of let people know, you know, these are, because these are also the constant questions I get when people email me all the time. They'll they'll email me and they'll say, oh, well, you know, InfoSec Institute says that you're full of crap and that you can't, <laughs> you can't do this. Uh, and, I, oh. and, you know, and it's like, well, I wrote that class. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, like, uh, you know, of course they don't say that in their material where they're supposed to, but, uh, they don't, they don't do that. But, you know, it's just that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, one of the, one of the other things I hear all the time is, you know, uh, when there have been companies where when people send in their hard drive and the company will basically try to say, okay, uh, we've looked at your hard drive and we know what it's going to take to fix your hard drive. We're going to need these parts. And we're going to have to do this. And here's a list of possible files that we're going to be able to recover from your drive. So we've recovered, you know, just your file list and they'll send them a list and then they'll say, okay, um, it's going to cost you, you know, $2,300 if you want these, you know, these files back. And of course it's once they see the list, they're like, Oh yeah, there's my pictures of my kids. There's my, you know, my holiday picture. And so it's kind of one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, uh, baiting them in at the same time. Well, the thing is, is they've already done your recovery at that point. Like oh. if they sent you a list of files, there are only a couple of ways that they can get this list of files, but they don't want to tell you, Oh, I can get this list of folders that has your kids pictures in it unless they're able to do it. So they would have already done it in order to produce the list, in order to give it to you, to tell you, well, yeah, now you got to pay $2,000 and we're going to try to do our recovery. And then they'll wait two or three days and then come back and say, yeah, we recovered your files. Well, they've already done it. They already did it before they sent you this list of files. It's another one of those things where they're just kind of, you know, trying to fool you into believe. Because we have this other problem, which is if somebody knows that we already did the recovery, 
when we tell them, here's your list of files, they try to negotiate with us. They're like, oh, well, you already did all this work, so I'm not going to pay you $2,300. I think that's only worth 200 Wow. Okay. So that comes up a lot, and that's a, that's a constant thing that happens. Uh, but just generally speaking, if somebody sent you a list of files and they're telling you, we can do this recovery, but it's going to cost you X dollars. And, and, and I'm not revealing anything because I'm honest with my clients up front. I mean, I tell them, I've already done all the work. This is already what we've done. Here's what we've recovered. And then if you want it, then you can pay us, but I'm not going to negotiate with you. So, you know, from that standpoint, we're either all or nothing. And, and that's just how you have to be. It's either, you know, either this is our price and you knew our price when we started. That's the thing about my company is my, my price doesn't change because, you know, we've recovered something that might be valuable. You have a, you know, a submarine uh, schematic or something on your, and so we're going to charge you another $2,000. We don't change our price based on that. It's always $800. Unless it's a forensics recovery, then we do those for 1200 But some companies do. And I, I have seen that before where people will say, based upon your size, if your drive or the content or, or what it is that we've got, your recovery is worth more. Gotcha. Yeah. And you're fair and honest about it. And that's I wish more people were like that in this world, but not everybody's like that. <laughs> well, and that's why I'm trying to point this out as a whole is just that, you know, people have this misunderstanding of, of what's already occurred. And sometimes what will happen is they'll say, well, this other company uh, sent me this list of files and they can recover it, but they say it's $2,300 and I don't want to pay that. And I know you're $800, so I'm going to get the drive back from them and then send it to you. But what they don't understand, too, is in that process, they've already done something. They've already disassembled your drive, reassembled your drive, replaced head assemblies or something. And when you get that drive back, in most cases, from that company, it's not going to be working. They're not going to send you back a drive that you said, screw you guys, I don't want to recover that because you say it's $2,300. I mean, your problem is you made the choice in the first place to send it to them. So you're at their mercy. Right. So whatever they've done to the drive, they're not going to send it back, and you'll be lucky if it's even somewhat functional, if it's even in the same state when it comes back, because there's no way to prove it isn't. You could take a platter off, flip it over, and no one's going to know. All you'll know is you can't recover that data at gotcha. that point. So okay. you can't send it. You can't get it back and then turn around and send it to another company in the hopes that they're going to be able to recover it and save you some money because you had this other company who did the analysis for free, and this other company charges. So you know, there's, there's a trade-off there that you have to be careful of. Right. So I know that you were going to ask some questions at the beginning of this, because you and I had a brief discussion before we got on the podcast about SSDs. Did, did you, uh, did you want to have that discussion? Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. And so there are a lot of technicians in computer repair businesses that are starting to put SSDs in servers and a lot of workstations um, which workstations I'm not as concerned about, but my concern is we really, it seems to me we don't have any longevity on how well an SSD is going to work. And we all know that we need to have backups regardless of what medium we use. In my opinion, though, a spinning hard drive, usually from even my standpoint, is easier to get the information off of for me than an SSD would be. Uh, if it If it fails... Then yes, there is a there is a whole realm of things that you can do with a physical disk that spins that you cannot do with SSDs and uh, SSDs. It, it, as far as their stability and stuff goes, they're 
I still think they're some of the worst out there, period. I see them die. I see, you know, one chip dies in the middle of a segment. You lose the entire drive in some cases. There's a whole ton of things that happen in this entire process. But the, the misconception that people have is how stable that they are. They, they have this idea that, oh, yeah, it's a solid-state drive and there's no moving parts, so therefore it's going to last 51 years or something like that. Right, and that's what we hear all the time. And I'm just I'm sitting there going, after talking to you over the, the last year and a half, it's kind of like, well, I don't think that's exactly true. And are people, because people want speed, right? So they're trying to get the yeah, speed. They're, they're they're thinking of it in speed and the fact that it's going to, you know, and, and, and there is some truth to the fact that it's going to have less problems than a spinning disc will during, you know, the first year lifespan or whatever, whatever it will normally be from that standpoint, because, because there is no spinning disc, there's no sound, there's no heat, there's no, uh, you know, there's no physical heads moving that could cause a physical problem in that state. So there's, there is some truth to that from that standpoint. Um, you know, we're also comparing it to uh, terrible SATA drives, like they're making SATA drives. If you buy a drive that's $40 and it's, you know, it's, they're, they're not going to have the best components in it. They're not going to be the best electronic. If you buy, you know, a SAS drive and the SAS drive is three hundred dollars for the same amount of space that you're going to get your SATA drive for for forty four dollars, there's something different about them, and you should be able to tell that easily by you get what you pay for. And there is a huge difference in the quality of the drive and the quality of the components and the longevity of the components, which is, you know, it's why a Cisco router doesn't die. 10 minutes, you know, into use, it can, Cisco router is going to survive for, you know, 20 years. It's not, it's not typically going to die in its first year of use from the solid state components or something like that. They're using better chipsets. They're using better equipment than you're going to get in your cheap $40. You know, I, I have an MP3 player or something. Right. So, so, so there is a huge, a huge difference in those, but yeah, they're mainly putting it in because they think that they can show, oh yeah, we can make a super fast server. And in some cases, does the speed matter? It, it may if you're in a video industry or you're in a rendering farm or something like that. But then your premise is that you do these these quick things that you're going to do, and then you're taking that someplace else. So your data is not remaining there. It's using that data to get there and to get it fast and to get your job done, but it's not going to stay right. stored in that device. You're still going to have a backup. You're still going to have some other resource, but you know, to me, at least from that standpoint, it should not be used in your regular day-to-day server. One of, one of the things I know from, because remember, I also owned a managed IT company for 20 years before I started doing data recovery. And one of the things I know about that is that, it, sometimes they want that thing to be stable for five to 10 years. I mean, I, there are still servers that I have that I installed years ago that are still out there running. I still have servers in my own banks here that have been running for eight or 10 years. And I, I care about them for their stability, not for their size. I mean, is size a problem? Maybe it may always be a problem because most of the time when you're talking about servers that old, you're not talking about, you know, 10 terabytes. You're talking about, you know, something like 300, you know, 300 gigs or something. You're not right. talking about huge amounts of space. But from a business perspective, we're from the place I'm keeping spreadsheets and, you know, day to day, you know, uh, uh, accounting files and my day-to-day processes, they're not meant to be, here's where I stored all my movies that I pirated. That's that's not where that should be. 
so on my server, that content will be pristine. And that content, and I'm just using that as hypothetical. I'm not saying I stole all these picture movies and put them on my <laughs> server. I'm, I'm just saying that's the constant thing I see when people, you know, when we're doing a recovery or something, there's going to be 16 megs of important files and 300 gigs of movie files that they somehow think that those really important movie files they ripped or, or they stole or Pirates Bay or something are important. Right. Um, but what's important is the stuff that's not recreatable. And that's, that's your work. That's the server based stuff. And I think that it guys don't think of data the same way that say accountants think of data. I mean, I know for a fact dealing with an accountant and dealing because I dealt with hundreds of accounting firms, hundreds of lawyers, that their data and and its reliability is far, far, far more important than its speed. And right. so the, I, I just cannot agree in the fact that, you know, new solid state drives that they think are going to be robust, they're going to last. Well, I, I swear you're going to be lucky if they're going to live five years. And I, I would say on a constantly used server in a RAID array, we're going to be pushing two, two and a half years in many cases. And we don't even have, you know, the breadth of data to tell you at this point how many of those have failed along the way. Because I see them all the time. But when they fail, it, it, it may be a massive failure. It may be a complete failure because you're not going to recover content from all. I mean, and, and I have numerous RAID uh, recoveries that I can tell you about that would tell you, you know, things like I, you know, I had a RAID array that I had one, the, the beginning portion of the drive was damaged and another one that the end portion of the drive was damaged in two different drives and that I've had to manually recreate the first half and the last half and then put those together in the RAID array in order to rebuild, like just stuff like that, that's not going to happen on solid state. Right. You know, and a lot of people are using, even when they're building a server or, or for storage, they're doing the, like the Western Digital Red NAS drives. And, mm -hmm. and they're thinking that they're going to be safer with those drives. They're more robust, but they're still a SATA drive, correct? I do not believe in those red NAS drives. I think that those things are crap, and I've seen them in for recovery, and they are failing at high numbers. Um, I personally would not put my stuff on those except in a temporary capacity. Right. And, you know, it, it, when you're using something like that, that has had problems and that is known to have problems, then you put that in a bank of drives, you know, you lose the idea of what RAID was supposed to be, which, you know, with redundant array of drives, the entire point being that if one of those drives died, that the others were going to continue to run because they are still going to have a really nice lifespan. Well, if you do this in an SSD drive or in a, you know, these red drives or some of the other higher end drives, shingled drives, things like that, what happens is whatever bugs are in one drive are the same bugs that are in the other drive. So you have the same number of write cycles, triggers the same number of, of write cycles and the other bugs will trigger on those other drives. So you end up with the same scenario. So if an SSD drive hits its maximum write capacity, and, and it dies in this process, then you're going to have exactly the same thing that's going to happen again in the next drive. And the next drive is going to be taken over for that drive when it fails, so it's going to have more rights probably because now it's having to compensate for the data. So gradually you're going to have this process of degradation where you know you don't ever make it through a cycle of replacing a drive and rebuilding a drive before the rest of the drives in the parade array die. And that's the most common thing that happens is you reach your you reach your maximum write cycles, and the NAND chips cannot live past a certain number of writes. Period. 
no matter what you do to it, the only way that they've made it live longer and get faster is by using actual RAM on the drives to do transactions and then cash those out and then write those back to the drive rather than doing those in a constant process where they do read, write, erase, modify. Um, so in this particular instance, that's going to, to impact those drives greatly uh, in speed and performance, but you're still going to get the same number of writes. So in two and a half years, when that server hits, you know, oh, I hit 10,000 writes or 3,000 writes on this one sector, then that sector dies. It's going to take the rest of the drive with it. And that's going to be the same thing for the next drive in the row because they're all going to have about the same number of writes. Oh, wow. Well, that, that kind of opens, uh, I, hopefully it opens up people's eyes to understanding the hard drive technology and that it's not just because we're paying a little bit more for different devices, that it's not going to be any more robust than what we've been using for years. Well, def, I mean, I, I currently, at least from a standpoint of people understanding how NAND and solid state drives works, I've, I'm just flabbergasted that, you know, I understand all the marketing and all the stuff that keeps going this way. And there's marketing guys writing these papers that, you know, do math funny ways that say, you know, 51 years of life. But <laughs> there, there's, it's just not, it, it just isn't actual reality. The, the reality and the other problem that actually happens in this process is that as drives have gotten larger, that their write cycles have decreased. So older drives had a longer write cycle than newer drives do. And so when we're diminishing this, and I know there's marketing material out there to say, I've got some new super duper awesome stuff that we're using for you know NAND chips. But again, look at the time period that we have for testing these things and you're putting crucial and critical data at risk for people who want servers to last five, seven years. In a lot of cases, when an accounting department buys a server, you still have to depreciate computer equipment for five years. So it depends on where you're at and what your rules are from that standpoint. But to say, uh, you know, I've got drives that are going to die in two years, from my perspective of using a server I and being on the other side of that from a business perspective, I don't think that's a long time. Right. I, I I personally am annoyed if it dies in under four years. So, you know, once I've set up an array or I set something up, years go by that I'm using this thing, um, I, I'm expecting it to last for forever. Gotcha. So and of course that's that's a that's a terrible expectation from a business side. From a technical side, you know, you kind of go, Hey, well, you know, this isn't reasonable. How long has this drive lived? Did it live five years? Yeah, you've done a great job. But if it only lives a year and a half or two years, you just constantly feel annoyed at this replacement process or the expense that goes with that. <clears throat> One, and there's other people out there that I've talked to too, that, you know, things like even the red, the Western digital red NAS drives, they, you know, they'll fail and they'll send them in for warranty. Right. And as we know here in the U S or Canada, you're basically getting back refurbished drives that are made, you know, that are made from other drives. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's way worse than that. And okay. refurbished drives are far, far worse than you would have ever imagined. So, and I've worked for a couple of these firms when they send them in for refurbishing. A lot of times what happens is they're either paying a company in bulk or they're reselling them in bulk. And then that company sells them back to them after they're done. And so it's not the actual manufacturer in most cases who's even doing the work. So they dump them off on somebody and somebody says, okay, fine, I'm going to do... I'm going to cut off the heads on this one platter 
and I'm going to, you know, decrease the size of this drive. So it's no longer uh, a one terabyte drive. Now it's a 500 meg and we change the firmware and we modify that and we send it back. So they didn't solve any problem. They didn't fix any problem 99% of the time. And they only, in many cases, can recover somewhere between 40 and 60% of these drives anyway because they're so bad in the first place. So it, it, these are not the kind of things that it's just like user error. I accidentally didn't reformat this hard drive or something like that. These are... These are hard, horrible errors that have happened. You know, heads dragging platters, and there's platter dust, and it's okay if we cut off one head, and the platter dust, you know, may affect the other heads, but it may not affect it during the cycle. So it's good enough that we tested it and we can send it back because they only need to get it past a certain threshold in order to say this is a workable drive in order to resale it back to the company. And they die again. Usually, you know, in most cases, my experience has been two to three weeks. It hasn't even been very long. Oh my. Okay. Yeah. No, it's been horrible. Like we we know any refurb drives that come in or any of them that have that that they are used like floppies. So whatever we're putting on it has to be temporary. It is not going to be permanently stored in any way. There's going to be redundancy. I mean, I'm really big about redundancy as it is in, you know, four or five different levels. I don't lose anything from that perspective, but but you should never ever consider using a refurb drive, warranty drives that come back. They now, other countries, it's not always the case. Other countries, like I've said before, Australia, they don't get refurb drives. They get real new actual drives back. I, I I think they don't get any. And there's some other protection in some other countries where, you know, Western Digital, somebody has to send them real and actual true new drives as opposed to – and same thing with OEM. So if you're doing it through Apple and Seagate needs a replacement, uh, which they're under warranty, they, like they uh, did a recall on Seagate hard drives because they had a constant problem of failing. And so Apple is replacing those drives. Well, Apple's not repairing those drives. They're dumping them back on the manufacturer. And so Apple actually will have, you know, a new OEM drive or something that they're putting in as opposed to refurb drives most of the time, uh, the majority of the time, I would say, uh, they come back as new good drives uh, because it would ruin Apple's name in the process. So that's part of their agreement. Okay. No, that's that's fair. Yeah, and, and this is good knowledge for people to have because you got to know what it is you're doing when you are replacing these drives under so-called warranty that yeah. you're not getting War back the same thing. Warranty isn't worth the price of shipping. It's not worth it at no. all. It's absolutely because, like I said, it's just unless you're just refurbing drives just to put them in other systems and sell them, get them out the door, but somebody's in danger. And, you know, there, there's still a lot of people. I mean, even people, even though they know they should back up their server, they are not backing up their server. And when their server dies, they still blame somebody. They still want a scapegoat. They still want somebody to blame. They want somebody to sue. They want insurance process. It's your fault. I mean, I've had I've had a drive. I had drives that come in. They spent they sent a rate array to uh, warranty repair. Seagate could not repair the drives in the rate array and get their data back. So they suggested they use another data recovery company. They used the data recovery company that they recommended, which again, Seagate has their own. They couldn't do anything about it. Then I eventually got them, but they went through a month long process of a rate array and not having their data first for the first month. Then I get it. Now it's going to take me a month to do my work because I have to do the rebuilds. I have to do the structure. And so two times they tried, they could not get data back. I recovered like 92% of all the data on the drive. I rebuilt it. I did everything. But in, in this process, uh, if you're using warranty drives, you're just putting all of that at risk again. And I just wouldn't even bother. I wouldn't even 
You know, it's almost of my opinion at this point. It used to be put all the same drives in the same array. My opinion now is probably that you should probably use different drives just so that you have a chance of something surviving. Right. That's different a good brands, point. different types. And if you're buying solid state drives and you don't know what an MLC or triple bit or SLC means, then you don't know what you're buying. And you are you're doing a horrific uh you know, injustice to your client. Wow. Well, I guess that covers all that. Let's take a yeah. uh, quick break for our sponsor. Our show today is brought to you by Reclaim Me Pro. Reclaim Me Pro is the all-in-one highly configurable data recovery software for both beginners and experts. And that's true because I can use it. So um, it, it is pretty, pretty simple. Um, recovers data from multiple file systems, including Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. It can find lost partitions, save and load your saved state, it's equipped with a highly configurable disk imager. It does sector-by-sector, sector, virtual hard disk, and VHDX. Reads most partitioning schemes from Microsoft to Linux. It also has powerful RAID analysis tools for complex RAID recovery. They also offer free data recovery training to help you understand partitions, file systems, RAID recovery, and more. For a free 14-day trial, go to reclaimme-pro.com. And when you decide to purchase, use the offer code PODNUTS for a 50% discount. I want to thank Reclaim Me Pro for sponsoring this episode of My Hard Drive Died. All right, Scott, do you want to go into this? We've got one email for the show and uh, with several questions and probably questions you've heard before. Oh, yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, I have heard most of them. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll go through those and we'll, uh, we'll kind of let you dissect them and, and okay. see what we can do for this guy. All right, this is from Michael Dodd, and it says, Hi, Jeff and Scott. Hope you both are well, and I have a couple questions for Scott. Notice he says for Scott, because I don't know anything. Uh, is, a, is a hard drive, SSD or spinning, more or less likely to fail if it has less than 20% free space remaining on the disk if it is being used for the operating system or for storage? Um. Well, I think if I understand, I mean, he's really just asking altogether if it has less than 20% free space, if it is going to do more damage to the drive. If That's I what it sounds like, yes. Question for the most part. And, and on SSDs, uh, there was always a discussion. Earlier SSDs, the th first three, four, or five generations of SSDs had an enormous amount of problems with regards to having to erase data in order to write data. And if the drive was full or the more full it was, the more work that it had to do because it had to read the content, modify the content, erase the content, and then write the new content back. And there was a process by this by which it made the drive slower and did more you know, physical work on the drive from that perspective. Whereas now today, most of the stuff is done in actual memory. So, so the content's read, it's put into actual, you know, real DRAM or, or cache on the drive, then it's worked on and then it's written out. I don't think the impact is what it used to be from that standpoint that you're seeing, you know, the slowness or the more damage in those same sectors because there would be uh, more work that was done for it to write across the entire drive. So I, I think there's been a lot of work to try to diminish that as a whole and the entire drive itself also where levels itself. So it doesn't matter if it's this 20% or that 20%, this percentage is going to then modify across the entire drive. And they've gotten a little bit brighter about doing something called over-provisioning. And over-provisioning is a position where you have more additional RAM than what you tell your 
you know, so you don't, instead of having a 256 gig, it's, you know, 448 gig and they only tell you 256 gig and they're using all that other for wear leveling to make the drive look like it's going to last longer or that they're adding stuff to it. So it's a, it's a, it's a mathematical game. It's a numbers game, smoke and mirrors, but it, it does actually work in the fact that because they've given it more space, it's going to live longer. So I, I don't think the impact is what it used to be. I think you're looking at newer generations of stuff. You don't have that. And, and I wouldn't feel in my personal opinion that, you know, 20% of the free space on the actual spinning disc is going to cause you that physical damage from that perspective. Um, you do have a, a process of which sectors are free and that most of the time as your drive fills up, it fills up from the inside ring or the outside ring to the inside ring. And as you're moving from the outside to the inside of the drive, you do have an impact of speed as well, that the closer you get to the center of the spindle, the slower that your drive is. So if that's where your most of your free space is going to be, which usually is, uh, then there's and, and there's kind of a whole, whole there's a process by which the operating system does certain things depending on which operating system that you're using. But I don't feel like it's going to do more damage to the drive. Um, it may cause a little more thrashing than you would expect. So maybe ultimately that might cause some damaging uh, to the drive, but. Uh, as a whole, I, I really don't think on a spinning disc that it's going to make that big of a difference. Um, and it's gotten far better on SSD. So I guess ultimately I'm going to say no for any current generation stuff. If you're using older generation stuff uh, for SSDs, I would say definitely it probably is going to impact you more than it would today. Is there a, I'm going to add, add on to this question. Is there a sweet spot of space that you want available for reading and writing and moving stuff around on a drive? before it gets too full? Well, so drives, and traditionally the way a spinning disk stores data is the closest lower number LBA numbers are the fastest ones on the drive. So as you fill up your drive, you're moving to your upper numbers, and that's going to be closer to the center of the spindle, and it will impact speed. I don't think it's going to you know, impact you know, the death of the drive from that perspective, but I wouldn't say there's a sweet spot, but... I certainly would say that, you know, less data is going to make your drive faster, especially on a spinning disk, just because of the position by which it's written. It uh, has nothing to do with the content of the data or the data existing on the drive. It just has to do with the fact that the when you first start writing data, it's considered contiguous. It's going to write in solid chunks all the way into the drive. The more data that you write, the closer to the center of the spindle you're going to get, and therefore it is slower. By definition. Gotcha. So, okay. So I, I, I don't think that there's a sweet spot. Now, the more you use it, the more you have files that are deleted, temporary files are done. Um, if you're on a spending disk, then Windows automatically detects that you're a spending disk, and it will automatically do performance increasing things. You don't really have to defrag your drive because it's going to shuffle you know, your top used files up to the beginning of the drive, and it's going to push other data down, and it'll do all this on its own. Uh, through this process, and it's kind of an automatic defragmentation process. And supposedly using trim on solid-state drives, that this feature is turned off. And on Windows, I do know for a fact in most cases it is turned off, but uh, I'm not so sure even when trim is enabled, the way that I see data move around on a drive inside of a Mac OS, I'm not positive in any way that trim is doing anything. It's very difficult to tell, and they don't really give us a lot of of material that shows us, yes, they turned something off or they did something. So, 
You know, my belief is, you know, by operating system, it really matters. And you're probably not getting any performance stuff on the Linux side unless you're using EXT4 and you compiled it for trim to be enabled. Then maybe you're going to get some performance increasing stuff from that perspective if it's a solid state drive. But otherwise, um, you're not you're not really going to get a huge benefit one way or another for any sweet spot of data. Okay. My rule of thumb has always been 50-50. And, and it's not 100% always like that, but... I'll tend to put more drives in and, and keep them about half empty, half full. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's just, it's it, you know, it's literally just, you know, in some cases, if you're full and temp files can't be created and things like that, it can do damage to your files and the files that it's trying to write from your operating system and things like that is possible. But, you know, generally speaking, it's not going to affect anything except for possible performance, uh, most likely now only on uh, spinning disks as opposed to solid state disks that, like I said, they've done a lot to try to improve that for solid state disks. And a trim feature is supposed to be an immediate delete. So if you delete a file, it doesn't exist. It's going to be gone immediately. It's not doing like it does on a hard drive. A hard drive doesn't take action on the deleted data. It will physically be deleted. It will mark it as deleted, but it will remain there on the drive until something overwrites it. And that's because on solid state drives, you can't overwrite data because the sectors, the content is filled when you actually charge something using hot electron injection, you're actually charging a cell, and the cell then contains an electron that's you know that's captured there. Whereas a hard drive, you're just overriding space by just remagnetizing the area. It doesn't matter what was there before. Okay, wow, that's that's real sciency. Um, <laughs> I learned something new today, so I have, I have a better understanding of of your explanation there. Uh, question number two is, how do you recover data from an iPad or iPhone that won't turn on? Well, that is a difficult task. Uh, <laughs> if it doesn't turn on, then a lot of times what has to happen is we have to either repair it in some way, open it up, change the battery, find out what's wrong with it. I mean, most of the time, and and I mainly do this for forensics because I don't do a lot of recovery for commercial use for iPads and iPhones because there's a lot of cheap markets out there that do things for phone repair and things like that. They're a hundred bucks and it doesn't make any sense. I do it for forensics cases. So when I'm doing it, people send in iPhones or iPads or, you know, some of the newer MacBook things. And we're physically spending a lot more time being a lot more careful about making sure that the data is not erased and that we have this process for repairing it, but it's an expensive process. So, you know, on the low end, you know, it's it's twelve hundred bucks on the high end. It's about three grand. So in this entire process, we're trying to make sure that this data isn't going to go away, as opposed to your local phone repair center. So a lot of times, what happens at like your local phone repair centers, they're going to, you know, try to first change the battery, then look for any capacity, anything that's blown, anything they can change or compare, uh, and you know, if they have to swap out a logic board. If we were trying to save the data, then what we would have to do is desolder the chipsets from a board, if we couldn't figure out any other way that recovers data or fixes it or gets it powered on, then we have to basically desolder the chips and move them to another board. And that's becoming harder and harder. Uh, we're starting to have epoxy on some of the chips. They're, oh. <laughs> yeah, they're starting to do a lot of things to make that very detrimental from that perspective. But a lot of times we're not really having to go that far. It's 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 just something's burned, something happened, uh, you know, a pen is broke or something. So in that entire process, most of the time, that's what we're looking at is just some way uh, to get it to function again enough that we're able to then 
connect it to some of our equipment because we have you know specialized equipment like we have a Celebrite, which is this eleven twelve thousand dollar tool for recovering phones and iPads that images them and then does a recovery against the data. Uh, so those are the kind of things that we're doing most of the time, and it does take a considerable amount of time to to be as careful as possible. And and there's even instances where you know you do have to break into an iPhone that you don't know the pen, you don't know the the code, and there's there's some um, some things uh, as the FBI has found out today that they can do uh, to get into phones <laughs> that they don't need to bother Apple with. Um, but again, there's kind of a trade-off. It's you know the longer and older a phone has been that it hasn't been used, then the more likely it is we're going to be able to break into it. But it, it you know when it doesn't turn on, it, that's a repair process. Find out what's wrong with it. Yeah, you know as far as that stuff goes, I've always looked at it like this: if somebody has physical access to your device, game over. There's 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 going to be somebody that's a little bit smarter somewhere that's going to be able to figure out how to get in there and get what they need off of it. So right. All right. Well, hopefully that answers your question, Michael. And question number three is, is a noisy spinning hard drive a reason to replace, even though it may test okay and pass smart test? Um, I would say yes. I would say, I mean, a simple answer is yes. Uh, however, in, in my mind, the first thing that went through mine was how old is it? Is it older than, say, 2005, 2006? And that's when they replaced bearings with uh, fluid dynamic bearings. And that's there's a huge difference in how the motor actually works back then. So what you may be hearing may be an offshoot from the motor and from bearings. And so older drives had ball bearings in them. And as they aged, you know, they spin around and they actually warm up and ball bearings start to disintegrate. And you have the same problem you have with, you know, trailers and, and axles and things like that if you don't grease them. And there's no way to grease them or do anything. So, right. so as they do age, they do deteriorate and eventually it does become a problem uh, because there's a magnet in there that's forcing the electromagnet to spin and eventually will do physical damage to the drive itself. And But noise is usually a pretty good indication that something has happened. Uh, conditions change, heat and temperature changes, head assemblies start to get closer to platters. They can, uh, you know, it, when they're dismounting, there's spots where things can bend or things can can happen over time i would definitely say if if its personality changes if the drive's personality changes there's a reason it's changing and so and most people know it i mean you can feel it you can in a lot of cases you click on a directory structure you know it takes longer than it used to take right. there's a process it's like and it's not just something that you know yes if you initially reformat your hard drive it will appear to be faster because now you have everything contiguous it's touched towards the outside edge of the disk it's going to appear to be better but that does not mean that it actually is better. So I, I would definitely say if you start to notice the personality of the drive starting to change, back up, back up, back up. <laughs> Amen to that. All right. Uh, the end of his email says, thanks for the great show. Regards, Michael Dodd from Brisbane, Australia. Thank you, Michael, for the email. Appreciate it. Great questions. And Scott, as usual, great answers. Um, I have one question before mm -hmm. we end off the show. Now, these Samsung, since we were talking about SSDs and servers and stuff like that, these, S these Samsung SSDs, these pros, they're supposedly have a 10-year life warranty. Mm -hmm. Is there, I mean, is there any reality to that? Well, like I said, there is some things they can do to improve them. And a lot of times I do see things where, you know, uh, I examined uh, some drives uh, several months ago for a company and 
they're OEM drives, so they're smaller drives. And when you're looking at, you know, 32 and 64 gigs for OEM machines, that's usually plenty of space. And they would say on there that they were going to last, ten, you know, and they told them 10 years and things like that. But what I what I did when I took them apart is I realized that even though they said that they were only like 32 gigs, they actually had four times the space. So ah. there was there was other chips, and they have, you know, physically – allotted only 32 gigs of usable space but in order to make it grow so in other words if you have twice the space you will then increase your lifespan by more than twice so if your lifespan is normally going to be three or five thousand writes and you're knobbing it off now you've actually got you know a, a possible choice of of adding twice as much space from that perspective and it actually is it i'm not going to do them because this is actually more math than just two times uh <laughs> it's like it's, it's like uh you know five raised to the 10th whatever and, and there's a power of how many write cycles and what it's going to go through in this entire process to decide how long that that's going to last and by you know tripling and quadrupling the space and doing over provisioning there definitely is a way for them to increase its lifespan and it appears so uh, in that process. And then there also is better chips. There certainly are better chips that if you buy um, pro-level chips, high-end level chips, the ones that have actually been fully tested and baked in the whole process, they definitely are going to last longer, which is the kind of chips that like Cisco uses in their routers, as I mentioned earlier. So when you see things like that, it certainly is possible that they're using the better subset rather than the crappy subset of stuff that they had previously been using. Because a flash drive that you're going to buy off the shelf, they know they're only going to piss off one person. And they know that when you buy it, you're only going to, you know, this isn't meant to last forever. Those are the ones they threw away. The chips, when they were testing them and they were building the, the ones that were the crap, they put them in a pile and then they sold those to the mass mass market. So those are the ones that are making their ways into your flash drives, not not you know the good stuff that they're going to use in a real solid state drive or a brand name solid state drive. So there are ways for them to make these last longer, but it's still kind of is smoke and mirrors because a cell has a certain lifespan, and no matter how many times you 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 know say that's a magic number. When you write to it 3,000 times, it's going to die. So the only way to not make that happen is to write to something else. So don't write to that that location as often. So they'll start swapping stuff around and trying to keep that that number from deteriorating as fast as it normally would. So that's how they're getting more lifespan from it. I got it. And okay. making these drives last longer. So kind of, you know, in that same – and and this is you know kind of the downside to you know I, I didn't mention it yet but you know Samsung uh, SanDisk got bought by Western Digital so Western Digital now owns SanDisk okay and and in my mind that makes me cringe because really right now we have Samsung and SanDisk and we we have very few manufacturers of there are chip manufacturers there are a lot of chip manufacturers that are out there but a lot of times they're not making retail drives they're selling the material to somebody else and they're making a retail drive out of it but you know, as far as brand names go, Samsung and SanDisk have been two of the highest end ones out there. And when SanDisk had nothing else to do except sell flash memory, their reputation is on the line. So they always made sure that it was a pretty good brand. It was pretty good stuff. It was encrypted. It was whatever. But now when you sell it to somebody like Western Digital and Western Digital being a drive manufacturer, part of their process is going to be how do we recoup our loss? How do we recoup what we spent on you? How do we, you know, now corners start to get cut, your quality, your, you know, are you going to kill the line and merge it into your hard drive? Like, what are you doing here? And so in that particular process, it scares me because now we're down to 
only a few main manufacturers that really matter. And it and not having competition or having those things happen can impact your your quality going out the door tremendously. And so if people ever if they just constantly are thinking of things as disposable and that it's only gonna last a year or two years before we replace it like a new iPhone every week. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I love how the new iPhone five came out yesterday, but they called it the iPhone SE. I don't know if you saw that. No, I didn't see that. I, that, you know, I, you know, I'll pay right. attention. Apple to stuff. decided, yeah, that their <laughs> a four inch phone is really viable. So they released a new one yesterday. They call it the iPhone SE, which is exactly the same specs, except for the newer processor and stuff in the, it's exactly the same. It's an iPhone five, but with upgraded parts. So rather than just call it iPhone five, se or something like that they just got rid of the five and made it like it's a new brand anyway those those are the kind of things that happen in these cycles is that they're just you know swapping out equipment doing things that that may impact everybody as a whole and that's what i worry about with you know the ssd providers basically being usurped by uh you know but in this case sandisk uh, being acquired by Western Digital takes one of the main players out of the market, and that really bothers me from that perspective. As opposed to Samsung, who had a horrible set of hard drives, they made their own. They had they made hard drives, and they were terrible, and they sold those to Seagate. So C- Seagate's kind of going down in the dump, I guess, because Seagate doesn't have any good stuff. Right. <laughs> There's a huge amount of problems, and really, we're only down to three manufacturers of hard drives: so Western Digital, Seagate, and Toshiba, and. Toshiba's really never been a great player in the American market, I don't feel like. Uh, I see less of theirs than anybody's. Uh, not because they are really good drives, just because the OEM manufacturers don't seem to have bought as much. Right. Yeah. As far as, yeah, Samsung, I see Samsung drives, Toshiba drives, and a lot of laptops. And, uh, yeah, usually they're failing and got to replace them. Yeah. So, yep. well, well, Scott. I answer your question there. Yep. No, that answers. Yeah. That really kind of rounds the whole discussion off and I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you for coming on the show again. And what kind of stuff do you have going on here in the near future? Well, I do have, I mean, this will be too short for this podcast to make it out by the time that, uh, next Monday, next Monday, I have a class here in Atlanta that's already populated. And so that's already going on. My next class is going to be in May in Washington, DC. So the last week of May in Washington, DC, if you guys watched for that here in 2016, that will, uh, that will be an upcoming one. I've already got everything done and I've already got a few people signed up. So if you guys want to sign up, you know, please try to do so, you know, at least 30 days ahead of time so that we have all the equipment and the stuff reserved for you since I have to travel there. And, uh, and then following that, I'm going to have, you know, the, the conference stuff coming up, which I know I will be doing Scott Olcon, uh, later in the year. So like September ish. Uh, but between now and then I actually have two trials. So I'm working on a murder trial and I'm working on a, another tax trial. I'm working on, I also do tax stuff as well and business stuff. So I actually am working on a tax trial in Colorado, uh, a huge one with, you know, Maine County and some, some other things that are going on that I can't mention, but, uh, but I do, you know, I do constantly examine data, you know, get this data back and deal with forensics. And, you know, that's one aspect and one avenue of our business. And I really enjoy that just from the the technical challenge of doing it. So those are the kind of the biggest things coming up. And uh, one day we will sit down and have some podcasts on forensic stuff. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Well, appreciate it. And uh, if you guys have any questions, you can email us at mhdd at podnuts.com and we'll, Scott will answer those on the air. I won't, but Scott will. Uh, if you guys want to leave a voicemail, we can answer those too. And that's a, uh, you can just call 1-888-697-0162. 
and we will play that uh, that voicemail and answer those questions. I want to thank Reclaim Me Pro for sponsoring this episode of My Hard Drive Died. And I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. We'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died. Music provided by Steve Cherubino at stevecherubino.com.